Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Amazing. Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listeners. Michael Cardamon is the CEO and managing partner at Foreign Ventures. You help founders grow and scale their businesses by providing them capital, personalized guidance, and support within the SaaS community. So your focus is primarily SaaS. And I think you're, you're writing around 75 checks per year for B2B SaaS founders. So Michael, walk me through your early thought process. How did you decide that venture is something you wanted to pursue? Yeah. I moved out of San Francisco in 2008 and wanting to get into tech and was kind of fortunate to end up at Box when it was about 25 people as they were kind of making that shift from consumer to more B2B focused and spent some time there, went to another startup in the ed tech space that we grew quite a bit in the four years I was there as well and got fixated on this idea of venture and being able to invest in companies and help them with go to market and started interviewing with a bunch of venture funds for associate roles and senior associate roles. And as I was doing that, I kind of got the itch. I come from a very entrepreneurial family and I realized like it was going to be hard to stand out in venture and jobs were hard to come by and the timing had to align and you have to like stand out amongst a lot of other people trying to get those jobs. And I felt like, what if I could do this myself and try to raise a small amount of capital? Like, could I get a critical mass of people from my network who I'd met through the early days of Box to kind of get involved and if I could only raise a small amount of capital, you know, what would be the right strategy to, to deploy that capital? And I felt like the accelerator model was, was a good way to deploy a small amount of capital and allow me to start investing, but also still be very hands-on operationally. I started talking to a bunch of accelerators and founders who went through accelerators and felt like there was an opportunity to create a B2B SaaS-focused accelerator. There were only a few in the country at the time in 2014. And so anyway, yeah, it was I had done a little bit of angel investing, but looking back on it, had probably no business raising a fund, but was able to get buy-in from like my old boss at Box and the CEO of Gainsight and the CEO of Zawara and um, other like SaaS executives who were early at Salesforce, early at Marketo. I was able to pull together. I told myself if I could get to a million dollars, I would do a first closing, get in business, announce it, force myself to then have to do it. And so that's what I did. Took a while. I then ended up raising 3.6 for that first fund over the next like six to 12 months after that. And now fast forward nine years, it was just nine years a couple of weeks ago, we're 28 people full-time. We've now invested in, I think over 400 companies through the accelerator. We're investing out of our second seed fund now. And then we also have a venture studio that starts companies from scratch. So we've got kind of three different strategies and three different kind of stages within that very early stage that we engage with founders and companies. But that was kind of my journey into getting into venture and, and building forum. And we used to be called Excel Prize. We rebranded to Forum Ventures about two years ago. The show is about your first hundred paying customers, but in your case, you're sitting on the investment side. And the hardest part is to raise the first fund and deploy it and get a good return. So you can do the same again. What has been the most challenging part in the early part of your journey, the first fund? Yeah, I mean, look, fundraising is still hard, especially in this market for emerging managers. And the seed fund is a new strategy and I'm mid fundraise on that. So 
can't talk too much about it, but it's certainly a hard market now. But on that first fund, yeah, it was really hard. I, it was basically a lot of just blocking and tackling, going to individuals. So I started out, Excelprise actually existed in DC. I had reached out to them. I didn't know them, but I said I was starting something similar in San Francisco. And I ended up reaching out to them and they were all running it part-time and thinking of not doing a second fund, but they, I ended up licensing their brand and they supported a bid, one of the partners there and said they would invest. I had also already gone to my old boss at Box, who I figure like she saw me firsthand working and executing. And I was like, if I can get her involved, then, then maybe I can get other people involved. So went to Karen first and she was like, yeah, of course, I'll you know, put in a little bit of capital and more importantly, put in some time. And then I started asking people in my network, like, who else should I get involved? And another person who was early at Box was now the CMO at Gainsight and raved about Nick Meta, who's the CEO of Gainsight, and was like, you got to get Nick involved. So he introduced me to Nick and again, was able to kind of convince Nick to get involved. And then it kind of snowballed from there. Nick was like, you need a big enterprise person. He had sold his company to Symantec and Rowan Trollope was an executive of Symantec at the time, who was then an executive at Cisco. And he was like, let's see if we can get Rowan involved. So he introduced me to Rowan and then Rowan introduced me to other people. And it just kind of snowballed from there. But it all started with like individual people then making intros out from there. And then I also got a little bit fortunate and someone came inbound who uh, was a former hedge fund person who had a thesis around investing in accelerators and had raised fund of funds specifically to invest in accelerators and was like outbounding to every accelerator he could find. And he happened to find us and we talked to him and he ended up putting a small amount into that first fund and then just liked liked how we executed. And he's now still one of our like big anchor LPs in our accelerator funds. So I think a mix of a lot of grinding, a lot of you know, a kind of one-to-one conversations with individuals and then a little bit of luck. I'm curious to know, how did you find your early startups to invest in? How did you create your pipeline? Did you have any framework or strategy you deployed early on? Yeah, it was a. Mi- I mean, it's still some semblance of the strategy now, but the way I thought about it was similar to a sales funnel of like, okay, can we drive inbound? That was going to be hard early on through without much of a brand, but I was, we got to post on TechCrunch and we tested doing some stuff with AngelList as they were kind of spinning up and F6S and other platforms like that where we could kind of get a presence and try to drive inbound applications for the accelerator that way. Two was network. So just working the network, trying to get referrals through other founders I knew, executives I knew, LPs in the fund, um, other fund managers like downstream where they saw companies that might be interesting but were too early for them. So just working the network. And then outbound, you know, I did a lot of outbound in the beginning, which was just a lot of time. I mean, it's easier now with some of the like AI products that are coming out and a lot of the stuff we're building now. But at the time, it was a lot of just like manually going through LinkedIn to see who just kind of put founder title on on their thing and going through AngelList and all the platforms, just trying to find companies that I thought looked interesting that I could outbound to. And then leveraging the credibility of the LPs I had brought in to help win deals, which was just as hard, if not harder than finding companies. You know, when I look back on it, like, you know, I think we only looked at 40 companies for the first cohort and we invested in seven of them. Now, you know, we see a, a lot more companies now, obviously, but that first it was 
just like raising the fund, it was a grind to find the first, <laughs> the first companies. But that first fund, which was three and a half million, we ended up with 42 companies in it that was deployed over two years from 2014 to 2016. And we've, it's done pretty well. Like we've returned three X cash to LPs and marked another three X and pretty clear line of sight to it being like a five to 10 X fund. But yeah, looking back on the early days, it was definitely, definitely a grind to find companies. I mean, it's very interesting what, what you say, because I've interviewed more than 80 people where I have 67 now online and most of them, they're grinding to get their first customers they're actually doing maybe the cold outreach they're on linkedin and it's very interesting to know that the other side which is the investment side when you're starting you're actually doing the same it doesn't come easy at all yeah like if you're spinning out of a big fund and you've built a brand personal brand and reputation it might be a little bit different but no one knew who i was i had done like a couple angel investments i joke but i think it's largely true of like my second ever angel investment was in the seed round of Flexport, which is now, a, I think, $9 billion company. Even early on then, it was like trending really well and probably gave me a false sense of confidence that I knew what I was doing when I had no idea what I was doing. But I think you need to like build on that momentum. And But yeah, no one knew who I was yet. I had to, A, lean on the credibility of the people I was able to get involved with LPs to help build credibility for our brand, but also help win deals. But two, yeah, I had to do it was a lot of hustle to find companies. Like it wasn't, I wasn't just getting flooded with inbounds from the beginning. Amazing. What have you seen from founders you've invested in, in terms of early acquisition strategies that impressed you that you said, okay, these guys probably aren't knowing what they're doing. They have the grid, they have the perseverance to go out and get clients. I'll take a step back and then I'll talk about specific strategies. But I think the ones who do really well are the ones who are like very, very focused on their customer and like really deeply understanding who their ideal customer profile is, why that person, like the specific person at the company, not just the type of company, but like the specific buyer at the company, like what do they care about and why do they care about it? What can you do to help make their job and their role better? And then like what incentive and motivation do they have to do that? And like, the more you can deeply understand your ideal customer profile, the easier it will be to then build messaging and pricing and go-to-market strategies around that. So I think first and foremost, it's just like be maniacally focused on tons of customer conversations, tons of customer validation, and like really hone in on your ICP. So that's something we work with a lot of our companies on to then really get good at the messaging piece and the pricing piece and like how you then go to market. And then as far as like tactical, I mean you know, you've probably heard a lot of this in a lot of your conversations, but I feel like the, especially the first like 10, 20 customers, depending on your contract sizes, it's always a grind. There's no one size fits all. It depends who your customers are. I think, you know, we've seen some companies be really successful where they were able to leverage platforms like Twitter or LinkedIn to build a following. And like, we have a company called First Base where I feel like as soon as the pandemic hit, like, even before the pandemic, the founder and CEO had built a pretty big following around remote work and the benefits of it. And then when the pandemic hit, he like really catapulted into kind of a huge following and became known as a thought leader and was like getting asked to be interviewed on a lot of blog posts and articles about it. That was a big driver of inbound leads for them early on because he was able to leverage that and build a bit of a personal brand around it. So that's one way is just being like really thoughtful and active 
and getting involved in the conversations around what you're doing on platforms like Twitter. But then there's also the people who are just very, I nailed my ICP, I nailed my messaging. Like, how do I get a list of all of those people and just like really hone in and iterate on an outbound sales funnel that's just like really dialed in, track every single step of the pipeline and see where I can incrementally improve each step along the way to, to kind of optimize that sales pipeline through just brute force of like outbound emails and cold calls and demos and all that. And, and I think both strategies can work. I think it just depends who your customers are and what your personality is. But I think early days, like first 10 customers, I tend to think it needs to be founder-led sales for a while before you start bringing in salespeople and start really trying to ramp like a sales team and process. Absolutely. You've seen hundreds of founders over the past years. What are common characteristics or patterns or blueprints that uh, founders exhibit early on that tell you that these people would make it big, especially you're in, maybe you're, you mentioned you're in the seed fund. So team is critical here. They're either trying to get product market fit or they're trying yet to get that scalable sales process so that they are eligible for the series A. So team is important. What have you seen these patterns or blueprints that, you know, impresses you? Yeah, a few things. I would say one is communication. So how clearly can you and concisely can you talk about how your market's evolving, how you fit into that evolving market and how you win deals in that market? And then what the long-term vision is for your company. I think that the more concisely you can communicate that, the easier it will be to recruit people, the easier it will be to fundraise, the easier it will be to sell. Because the reality is like you're partially just selling your vision to early customers because you're going to have an early product that doesn't have all the things that they need. And you need to get them excited about here's where the market's going in the future and like trust us that we're going to get there. And I also think a good communicator tends to build trust faster. And when you can build trust faster, like trust, is, especially in a market like this, is such a big component to, again, hiring, fundraising, customers buying from you. So, so that's one. Two is speed of execution and just like actual execution. So that's a hard thing to suss out, like we're trying to figure out, like, has someone had a track record of executing well? And, you know, you can look for signs of that and throughout their career. But I think part of what we're looking for is like speed of execution as well. So can we see early on that they're just, they're on it, like founders are just on it, they're executing fast, they're, they're iterating quickly. Um, so we're trying to look for like that speed of execution. And then, I, you know, I think the other is that focus on customers. So, uh, you know, we talked to a lot of founders and like you talk to some who are just feel like they're just building in a vacuum and haven't really talked to a lot of founders or a lot of customers. They think they kind of know what they need to build. And I think the ones that are so focused on talking to as many customers as possible early on to really help shape the product, um, I think have that has correlated more to successful founders than not. In your opinion, what are some of the most exciting trends or emerging technologies that are shaping the SaaS ecosystem today? You know, it sounds cliche to talk about AI and generative AI, but I think almost any SaaS company, like next-gen SaaS company, is going to incorporate AI into some portion of their product or some features within the product. So I'll put that aside because that I feel like is almost going to be table stakes moving forward. We look a lot at kind of healthcare, big industries that we feel like still have a lot of room to adopt technology. 
that we think are now increasingly looking at ways to adopt it. And so health tech is one, like we think there's just, when you talk to health systems and look at their tech stack, like there's just so much room and opportunity within healthcare still. Um, I think supply chain logistics is similar. There's still a ton of opportunity within supply chain logistics that we look at. And then we really like vertical SaaS. Like I, I think it's amazing how many verticals that are seemingly niche, but still pretty large are still like relatively laggard, you know, lagging behind in tech adoption. And I think there's an opportunity still in a lot of different verticals to build kind of vertical SaaS platforms and then leverage kind of that vertical SaaS playbook of eventually layering in other ways to monetize, whether it's embedded insurance or payroll or payments or, you know, whatever it is. But um, those are areas that we spend a lot of time looking at. If we have listeners here interested into getting your accelerator today, what are the requirements? So the accelerator is, you know, we're often first check-in or very early money. Usually they've raised, companies have raised less than kind of a few hundred thousand, usually from angels. So we're very early. It's, you know, it's usually founding team. They probably have some early version of a product. They may or may not have customers yet. And I think it's, you know, we'll look at everything from like idea stage to some early traction. But I would say the average stage is that that kind of early version of a product with maybe a, a couple early customers on it and relatively early in revenue and first check-in is probably the average stage. Amazing. What is a business principle that you live by that has made you successful? <laughs> it's a good question. I, I mean, I think this sounds kind of cheesy and, and I would imagine it. I think it helps long term, but maybe short term is <laughs> you know, is uh, harder to quantify ROI on. But we've like over optimized for not just like really smart people at our company, but just like kind, genuine people. Like I think you know you spend so much time at work and with your colleagues, and even with founders. And I think like I've always erred on the side of just like not being confrontational, being kind, being founder friendly. And like sometimes to my own detriment, but I think long-term you build a very genuine brand around that and like ethos and culture. And I think you can feel that in our company now and our founders notice it. And then it starts to kind of propagate out throughout our community. And I just think it's really important and has been a long-term driver of success for us, even if like short-term at times it can be not problematic, but not ideal. If you go back to your box days, is there an advice that you received back then that you brought with you to foreign ventures? So not directly at Box, but I was at a Box conference and one of the speakers at the conference, this was like in 2013 and was frankly like somewhat of played a part in the influence of me starting this versus like just continuing on the path of interviewing venture funds. They talked about you know, if you persist in your career around, you know, and you work hard and you network well and do all these things, like you eventually set yourself up to get lucky in some capacity. And a lot of people end up getting lucky and can kind of work your way into luck. They then said, but the key to being really successful is the people who can leverage that luck the most into their next thing or their next phase of growth. It struck me of like, at the end of the day, like I was pretty lucky to end up at Box early. Like, it wasn't like I knew how to underwrite a company at that point. And, and it wasn't like I met Aaron and thought this 21-year-old really smart 
guy was going to build a public company worth billions of dollars. It was, they were giving me more responsibility than I probably deserved at the time. And I wanted to work for a startup to be able to learn as much as possible. And it was a fun culture. Like those were all the decision factors. It wasn't that I knew it was, or had a hunch it would be some big company someday. And so I felt myself like, okay, I got lucky to do that and lucky to then build an amazing network around that. How can I leverage that to take a risk and start my own thing? So that was one piece of advice that I heard indirectly from a speaker at a box conference that had an influence on me and my career and some of the decisions I made. If you were to write a book, what would be the title of that book if it's about (laughs) your life and why? (laughs) I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if persistence is the right word, but I feel like this journey, it's been nine years and I hope I do this for the rest of my career. And I think this is the case for almost every founder we've worked with. Like it's never a straight line. And I think part of what you have to do to build something big and meaningful in most cases is to like stick with it longer than most people would rationally stick with something and like fight through the down sides of it and like the times where it might not work and the times you have imposter syndrome and all the things like family t- telling you like, why don't you just get a real job? Like all the things that you're going to hear from the outside and kind of persisting through that. And I think that's frankly what it takes for most people. You know, I'm sure there are outliers and examples where it was just like an up and to the right straight line growth, but in most cases it's not. And so I, I don't know, I take a lot of pride in what we're building because it was hard. It was a grind. <laughs> and there were like multiple points where it almost didn't work. I don't know. I don't know if that's what I would call it, but I do think that's like a something I think a lot about of like, how do I just like outlast others? <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for sharing this, Michael. One last question. What's next for Michael and for him, VC? Our goal long-term will remain the same of like, we want to build kind of the go-to platform for early stage B2B SaaS founders at whatever stage makes sense for them to engage with us. And we define it as like zero to sustainable and sustainable we think of as like series A or self-sustaining. And so we think of the studio as kind of like the negative one to zero phase. And then we think of the accelerator as like the zero to one. And then the seed fund as like the one to one plus stage. And so we want to stay in those with those three kind of stages, like very early stage, but continue to grow what we're doing on all fronts. So grow the seed fund so we can start like really leading deals and being like a meaningful check. We're already writing like 500k, 750k checks, but be able to scale the check sizes so that we can like really lead rounds and invest in even more companies through the seed fund, continue to scale the accelerator. You know, I think last year we did probably 50-ish companies through the accelerator. This year we'll do 90 to 100. I think we can continue to scale the volume a bit through the accelerator uh, as we continue to build the brand. And then the studio, I think we have pretty ambitious goals around what we want to do there as well. But yeah, we want to stay at that like very early stage and continue to just build the best in class kind of platform fund and community for early stage B2B SaaS companies. Amazing. Thank you for stopping by, Michael. Uh, we wish you the best of luck. How can people reach you? Yeah, I'm just on Twitter at NG Cardamone. I'm Mike at forumgc.com. We also have a pitch us form on our website, but yeah, we'd love to hear from anyone. Thank you very much and good luck. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the first 100. 
We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 